Good morning, everyone. If you could turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 9 and um, read through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, having heard your word, we ask now that your word would do the work that it is designed to do, and that is to not only bring us knowledge about who you are, but that it would challenge us and that it would change us, that it would encourage us in our walk with Jesus, our Savior. God, we ask as we, as is our practice and is our habit of doing, we ask because we need your help in understanding this. We ask you give us the eyes to see and that you give us ears to hear so that we might Having heard and having seen, we can now do what you call us to do. And so, God, fill us with your spirit. This we ask humbly in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, the, the book of Revelation, as we have seen before earlier in this series, it's a, a letter written by John. Um, but as uh, we've said before, John is not the, the author in the sense that he's the originator of this. What we see in this book of Revelation is actually a revelation. It's disclosed to John from Jesus. Jesus gives John the commands to write. And so this is a record of exactly what Jesus wanted John to know. Uh, it's an unveiling, a revealing, a disclosing of not just what's happening in the future, but of 
uh, meaning when Jesus returns, but it's also a disclosure of the reality of the world as it is that we don't see. Despite how things look, the kingdom is established and Jesus is reigning and he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. And it is the word of God. This is a word from God directed to us. And if the message of the entire book could be summarized in one very, very short sentence, it would be Jesus wins. Jesus wins in the end. Uh, I've heard a story of a professor, of a New Testament professor, uh, who was walking on campus and he saw one of his, uh, one of the janitors of the uh, the university uh, sitting down on a break and reading the Bible. And the professor goes, what is it that you're reading? And uh, he goes, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And he's like, oh, yeah, so uh, what, do you, what do you think the message is of that? He's like, oh, it's not very confusing to me. Jesus wins. And he's like, I think that's pretty, that's pretty accurate. Jesus, Jesus wins. Jesus has conquered. He is ruling. He is reigning. And he is in control. And he is about to give some instructions to seven churches that really is a message to all of us. And what we see in chapters 2 and 3, if you have a, a Bible that has a, a red-letter Bible, you've heard of red-letter Christians or red-letter Bibles, right? It's just they've taken the words in some Bibles. It has the words of Jesus in red letters. And if your Bible is one of those Bibles, you will notice that chapters 2 and 3 is entirely in red letters. Chapters 2 and 3 are entirely the words of Jesus to these churches. And so he's writing to confront them. He's writing to encourage them, to call them to do some very difficult and hard things. But before he does, he gives a vision that what we see in, in chapter one, he shows up to John. He reveals himself to John and seeing who this Jesus is in chapter one is so important to understanding what his message is in chapters two and three. And so we have before us in chapters uh, two, chapter one, we have this vision of Jesus. We get to chapters two and three, where he now addresses the churches. And then he gives a revelation, which fills up the bulk of the book, a vision that goes from chapters four through 22. And so what John uh, what prefaces all of that before we get to the vision of that, that John receives before we get to the instructions to the churches, we have a picture of the resurrected Jesus. And that forms the basis for how it is that we are to see the world today, how we are to see the future and how we're to conduct ourselves in this life. There's basically two parts to this, to this teaching outline. And I'll just go ahead and give you both of them. Um, uh, the first one is uh, the vision. This passage can be broken up into two parts. The vision of Jesus, John sees, and the words from Jesus, John hears. The vision of Jesus, John sees is verses 12 through 16. Like we said before, this is the beginning of a letter. So notice how verse 9 begins. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, just a reminder of who we're talking to, talking about here, who is addressing this letter. This is John. This is not John the, the Baptist. This is John, one of the disciples of Jesus. He was part of Jesus's inner circle, along with Peter and James. 
He was there at very key moments when it was just Jesus and these three. The raising of of, uh, Jairus' daughter, for instance. It's just Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He was there at the the transfiguration where Jesus takes those three up into the top of a mountain and he discloses more about who he is. When Jesus separates from his disciples uh, in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he is arrested and crucified, uh, he takes with him the small group. John is a part of that small group. John really knew Jesus. And John is the author of the Gospel of John. He's author of the letters. But uh, again, he in when it comes to Revelation, he's the writer of this gospel. This is a chain of revelation that came from God to Jesus to Jesus' messenger, angel, uh, on down to John, who's now for our servants. And so John is uh, an apostle. He's one of the authoritative figures of the church. But notice how that's not how he addresses those to whom he's writing. He says, I, John, your brother and partner, we're fellowship co-worker, co-experiencer of the kingdom, but also the tribulation that you have to experience to get to the kingdom. So this is no false humility here. John is addressing this group of people, not with apostolic authority, which is his right to do. He says, hey, I'm, your, I'm a brother. I'm a, I'm a fellow sufferer with you of what you're experiencing. And that all of this is actually in Jesus the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. In other words, John is saying, hey, in Jesus, we're all one in this. I love it. And so that's how John begins. And then he gives the setting of this vision that's taking place. He kind of gives a little of the story, like where it happens. I, John, was on the island called Potmos. So we saw on that map, it's this little island out in the, the middle of the, uh, off the coast of uh, the modern-day Turkey, where John was exiled. And why was he exiled? He says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So Patmos, is no, uh, this is no vacation destination. This is, this is prison. He's not in retirement. He, he's in jail, and he's being persecuted. And the reason he is being persecuted is for the gospel. For the announcement that Jesus was crucified for people's sins and that their sins could be forgiven if they trust in the one who came from God to save them from their sins. And that God has vindicated him and brought him back to life and he is now alive and living and ruling. He's, John's going around announcing this good news that you could be saved. But that news runs counter to what uh, the message that the authorities wanted to were allowed to hear and so john was imprisoned we don't really know i don't think we can know or really speculate on what his uh, emotional state would have been what would yours have been what would that have been like for you to be imprisoned uh on an island because you merely were just talking to people about jesus perhaps he was thinking well this is the end we know this is kind of at the end of the first century, maybe they date this book right in the middle of the, the 90s, like 95 AD, which means John would have been a pretty old man at this time. Maybe he's thinking, well, this is all, this is the end. All of the other apostles are, are dead. All of the other apostles are gone. 
I'm an old man now. The churches are being persecuted uh, by the empire. And maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe this is it for me. I'm here locked up on this island. But notice what happens. I'm just speculating. Maybe, you know, he's like, well, what would you think at the end of your, your days? And you're in this kind of situation. It's right in that moment that Jesus shows up. What does Jesus say? Write this down in a book. It says, I have two commands, basically. Write what you see and send it to the churches. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write what you see and a book and send it to the churches. Right when John thinks that the gospel might be locked up, Jesus shows up and he says, write it down. Put it in a book. And as I was reading this a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, well, God's God's word is not going to be bound. It reminded me of a, a passage in Jeremiah. If you would turn to Jeremiah, it's in the kind of the middle of the Old Testament. Jeremiah being one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. <clears throat> and in Jeremiah chapter 36, um, maybe you might be familiar with this story. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and he has his little uh, assistant writer named Baruch write it down. He dictates it to him and he writes it on a scroll. And here he's, there's a kind of a condemnation against uh, King uh, Jehoiakim. And he gives some warnings there. And, uh, and this word that's for Israel, all of Israel and relating to the leadership in Israel, King Jehoiakim. Uh, but Jeremiah is banned from going to the temple or to the temple area to deliver this message. So he sends Baruch and to deliver the handwritten scroll dictation that he receives. You familiar with the story? Verse, uh, this is Jeremiah 36, verse 23. As Jehudi read three or four columns, Jehudi would be the reader. He's reading to the king. The king would cut them off with a knife. And throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all of these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Right. So here's this word of judgment that's coming to the Lord from Jeremiah. And this king listens to it and he's like, oh, yeah, read me a column. OK, let me see that. And he cuts it with a knife and burns it in the fire. I don't like that message. Burn it. Oh, you know, okay, no, this, this, you know, this is, this is kind of an act of defiance. He's not just an anti-clutter person that just wants to shred every bit of mail that comes when it comes in the house. Uh, no, this is an act of defiance against the word of God. Notice what it goes, goes on to say, verse 27. Now, after the king had burned the scrolls with the words that Baruch had wrote, wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, verse 28. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned. I love this. The Lord's like, you could burn the scroll, but they're the, they're the, I'm, the, I'm the Lord and they're my words. Burning the scroll may destroy what was written on the scroll, but my word is going to remain. He's like, I'll just write another one. I'm the Lord. 
So the Lord says to, Je- to Jehoiakim here, you know, uh, you can burn, burn the scrolls. You can make them go away, but the message of that will not go away. You cannot stop the word of God. You cannot stop the word of God. Paul says uh, something as I was thinking about that. I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened with Paul as he's going around in, in his ministry. Paul writes to the to the Philippian church in one. And he goes, I want you to know, brothers, Paul was imprisoned as well. I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me in his imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. It's like, it's weird. They want to lock me up so that the gospel won't spread. But then I get locked up and actually the gospel spreads even more. He goes, so that it has become uh, known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You cannot stop the word of God. Again, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And then he wants to add, but the word of God is not bound. You cannot stop the word of God. You might be able to detain the evangelist, but you can't restrain the evangel. You might be able to lock up the preacher, but you can't lock down the word of God. John is saying, I'm imprisoned, exiled on this island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was imprisoned for the gospel and Jesus showed up and said, hey, write this down. And send it to the churches. Your imprisonment is not a, a hindrance to my word. You, and what's really kind of the amazing thing here, friends, you are reading that book. That message when Jesus shows up to John as he's locked into that prison cell. And he says, write this down, send it to the seven churches. We're reading that. That word has extended all the way to us here in Byron Center, Michigan. That's amazing. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? Have you have you been afraid or fearful to speak the word of God? To speak the gospel You've ever been fearful for the testimony of of Jesus Christ? I think the encouragement here is we have nothing to be afraid of. God's word will go forth. God will use it. Jesus will show up. And his word is powerful. So John goes on now back to, to Revelation. John goes on to say, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard this loud voice behind me saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then verse 12, you have something that occurs quite frequently in, in Revelation. It's an interesting little, uh, little thing and is typical of this type of literature, what we call the genre, right? The type of literature uh, that Revelation is, this apocalyptic Revelation literature. 
or apocalyptic prophecy. Um, he hears something and then he turns around and he sees something entirely different. Or somebody says, says something and he goes, behold, look at this. And John turns around and it's something entirely different. We'll get to that uh, in chapter four. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says that he turned around and what does he see? He sees the lamb that had been slain. I can't wait to get to that one. That'll be a good one. So you have him turning around and he sees something different. He goes, then I turn and I see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw. And then he gives now here a description of uh, of Jesus, of what he sees. I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Stop there for a second. This is immediately supposed to call into your mind Daniel chapter 7. And if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 7. We'll see a little bit of this, uh, what this means here. When he says, I see someone like the, the son of man. This, this entire vision actually is largely drawn from Daniel chapter 7 and a couple of other Old Testament prophets as well. So it might be helpful just to see this, this, whole, uh, this whole passage here. This is likewise, it's a vision that Daniel receives. Verse one of chapter seven in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. If you've read Revelation, this would be kind of like, oh, this sounds, this sounds familiar. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked and its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast like the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Then after this, I looked and behold... Another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and a dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped on what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. Got it. Very reminiscent of what we'll get to later in Revelation. He's getting, Daniel here is getting a vision of kind of history and the coming history and the coming future. And then he says this in verse 8. And I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking great things. And as he sees this beast, verse 9, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. 
I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned in fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their, their beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This should be kind of reminiscent of what we saw several weeks ago in Daniel chapter two of the image uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had seen, right? And there were four parts to this image, head of gold, chest of silver, etc. And that the stone that struck the iron and clay feet and the image was destroyed and that stone became a mountain. You see something similar happening here. These four, be these four beasts representing these four different kingdoms. And then you have this one, as Daniel sees, one like the son of man who's going to come and judge all of them. He's going to be the final and ultimate judge. And his coming, he'll be coming with the clouds. This is a key phrase. Son of man. Comes from Daniel chapter 7. And that's the term that Jesus uses to describe himself throughout the Gospels. Jesus is the son of man. Which according to the biblical background is pointing to this person who comes, who is deity. There's two terms. Jesus is referred to as the son of man and he's referred to as the son of God. And some people think son of man conveys his humanity and son of God conveys his deity, right? You know, it's man, man, God, God. It's actually the inverse. Son of man uh, conveys the deity of this messianic coming person who's coming to judge. The son of God is kind of connected to Adam, and humanity. And so, it's just so you know, it kind of that goes kind of backwards. This is the first glimpse we get here of the Son of Man. Daniel gets to see this. And what John sees is that same Son of Man. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a Son of Man. The one who is coming to judge. The one who is going to see all of the evil that is being conducted in the world. And he is going to judge that and make it right. This is what John sees. Notice he goes on to describe Jesus clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. There's supposed to be some sort of kind of priestly image here. He's got a long robe that it's literally it's clothed to the feet, which which we saw in Leviticus was the, the proper attire for the priesthood. He needed to have uh, clothing that went all the way down to his feet, a white robe that went down to his feet. And then remember, he had this golden plate on his chest that had the stones of the 12 tribes of Israel on it to represent them. Here, when we see golden sash, we think like Miss America, right? Like Jesus, you know, with like perfect hair and then the golden Miss America sash. No, this is like a golden wrapped around his chest, uh, kind of a shield glorious looking thing okay 
So this is kind of this priestly representative role, but he's also the son of man who's coming. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. Again, this reminds us of what we just read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a surface. The refining of something in a surface, in a, in a furnace was uh, uh, how metals were purified. And so this speaks to kind of the purity that you see in Jesus. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Again, a heavenly vision. This time it comes from Daniel or from Ezekiel chapter one, when Ezekiel says, and I, I heard the sound of many waters, the sound of the almighty. And in his right hand, verse 16, he held the seven stars which we uh, know are the messengers. Notice, jump down to verse 20, where Jesus gives the explanation. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels to the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So notice what you have here is you have in his hand, Jesus is, is this son of man figure. He has in his hand his messengers. And as for the lampstands, that's how John turns and sees him. Jesus walking in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is present in his church. He's there. And this is what John sees. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Back up a, a phrase here. You have from his mouth came a sharp two edged sword. This kind of comes from. Um, a couple of passages in Isaiah here in Isaiah, you have some prophecies. One is a description of the Messiah who is coming from the stump of Jesse. And it describes him this way in Isaiah 11. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equi uh, equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Here you have this sword from Jesus' mouth. And again, later in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, you have another description of this Messiah, except this time it's not somebody else describing him. It's the Messiah himself speaking. And he said, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow His quiver, in his quiver. He hid me away. These are both speaking to Christ coming as the role of judge or the Messiah coming as role of judge of the wicked. And this is what John sees. And by the way, this is how Jesus truly is right now. This is how Jesus, who Jesus is Truly right now, obviously, there's some symbolic and prophetic imagery that's bound up in this. I mean, we we would uh, we don't have to believe that Jesus literally his tongue was actually a little like literal iron sword. Right. This is these are some imagery that's to convey who Jesus is. But this image of Jesus coming in all of his resurrected glorified, exalted state. That's how he is right now. How do you picture Jesus? 
Right? How do you picture Jesus? Everybody's familiar with that the scene from uh, a movie where he, you know the main character prays, prays, "Dear Lord, Baby Jesus," and his wife's like, it, "What? Why are you? Why are you praying?" He goes, "I like the Christmas Jesus the best." Which Je- which Jesus do you picture? You like Christmas Jesus the best? I imagine many. You don't teenage Jesus. We don't have a whole lot of teenage Jesus. Is it Gospels Jesus? Jesus who goes around with, with dirty feet, with his disciples, sleeping in a fishing boat. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, we often picture Jesus as he was depicted in our Gospels, as he was on earth. But that's not who Jesus is now. We, we shouldn't forget who Jesus is now, the picture that we get, that we often have in our mind is of the historical Jesus from long ago. No different than how we would picture like a George Washington. But George Washington is dead and gone. It's okay to picture him as he was when he was alive. Jesus is alive. And he is ruling in reigning in heaven. And when he shows up, this is what he looks like. This is what he looked like when he shows up with, with Paul terrifying Paul and blinding Paul. This is what Jesus looks like when he manifests himself, when he has manifested himself as it's revealed in Scripture. That's how Jesus is now. Resurrected, glorified, and kind of terrifying. Because he's coming back to judge He's coming back to vanquish his enemies. And so that's the picture, the vision that John sees of Jesus. And now we get to the words from Jesus that John hears. So we have the vision of Jesus John sees. Now we have the words from Jesus that John hears. Verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. By the way, that's the, that would be an appropriate response when seeing this depiction that we saw in the, the earlier verses. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I mentioned last week that Jan and I sat down to kind of read through Revelation as, as I hope that you're doing. And... Uh, and Janet had asked me this question when we came to the end of chapter 1. She's like, why is Jesus so scary? Why is he so terrifying? Why is the first thing that John thinks, who knew him in his life, in his earthly life, who was one of his inner circle, why is the first thing he thinks is I'm falling down as, as though dead? She's like, why, why did Jesus come? And I thought that was a, a very interesting uh, question. And I, and I said, well, I guess I would kind of think that that's the point. That's in some ways the point. That Jesus would come and show up as he really is and actually be terrifying. And that it would be terrifying to John, but it would also in a very similar way be very reassuring to John that Jesus is coming to judge. And that Jesus is on his side. Kind of an illustration I, I was thinking about. So I don't know how well this works, but I'll give it a shot. 
Uh, imagine you were being held by terrorists. You'd gotten captured. You're held by terrorists. You're locked in some kind of uh, desert cave or some old dusty building in the prison cell. And you're locked in there and you're wondering if your family even knows if you're okay. You're wondering if your own government uh, knows about your location or your whereabouts. You're wondering if you're going to be stuck there under these uh, control of these little group of terrorists. And then you hear a sound. And you're scared a little bit thinking maybe it's the terrorists coming back to, to, to check on you or do, do something worse. Maybe you see a light and you turn to see heavily armed soldiers. Okay? And moving with very per perfect and purposeful and deliberate movements. They have on night vision goggles. And armor. And massive weaponry. Now, would you be terrified in the face of somebody who shows up to you like that? But then you hear them say, don't be afraid. We're here to rescue you. Come with us. How would you how would what you feel change? Would you go from being really terrified to being the sense of amazing relief because this purposeful, diligent warrior soldier is now here for me and on my side these are navy seals special ops show up terrifying and powerful but they're on your side and they say fear not i think john is supposed to supposed to be terrified of seeing who jesus is because as you would be in that prison cell you would be going i feel like i'll be i could follow what these guys might have to say and if they encountered the terrorists, I think I'll be all right. I think John is supposed to be terrified, but yet have that sense of relief that Jesus is on his side, that he knows that this mighty Jesus, who he is, is for him. And then notice what Jesus says to him. He says, fear not. Even in the midst of experiencing this terrifying picture of Jesus, he says, you don't have anything to fear, John. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I, de I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. John is to be reassured because Jesus is on his side and Jesus' enemies should be terrified. What does this teach us about God? Who he is and what he has done and what he will do? I think the whole picture here of this entire vision is to convey that Jesus is God. Jesus is victorious and he has conquered. That he is resurrected and that he is ruling and that he is in control. I have the keys. What does this teach us about us? Well, for those of us who are apart from Christ, who are without Christ, who are in rebellion against Christ. Who probably have no fear of a peasant small town rabbi from Galilee. For those of us who are apart from Christ and are in rebellion against Christ. We will be made to come face to face with this terrifying figure 
of Jesus as, as judge. Is that you? To those who are united to Christ, it's a different message for us. To those of us who are united with Christ by faith, we are told, fear not. I'm on your side. I'm with you on this. And that to those of us who, are, who do believe in Christ, what is this passage setting us up to do? I think it's setting us up to listen very closely to what Jesus is about to say to the churches. Jesus is, this whole vision, as I said earlier, is prefacing this message in all red letters of chapters 2 and 3. And so we are to see this picture of Jesus and then our eyes need to be open. We need to have our ears perked up and ready to listen to what this Jesus would have to say. The message then for us is we need to listen to hear and obey because he is the risen one. So as we get ready to explore what Jesus would have to tell us, let us be reminded of the picture of the resurrected Jesus. And I encourage you this week, if you have been following along with memory verses, I have uh, memory verses for us uh, to memorize this week. And I would say these would be verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. Let's memorize the words of Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He commands John to write this down. And he's commanding us to listen. Amen. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father God, we have heard your word. God, we have seen a vision of Jesus as he presented himself to John. And we're grateful, God, that this was written down precisely as John was instructed. And that we are reading this message. God, may we be encouraged by seeing Jesus as he is depicted. May we, even though it feels as though the kingdoms of this world might be winning, may we know that Jesus is ruling and reigning. May we heed his word to tell us to fear not. May we boldly share the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. May we not fear what others might think about us.
God, we thank you that you've, you've given us this picture of Jesus. And now, God, we ask that you give us over the course of the next several weeks hearts that are willing to hear what he would tell us. Because of his resurrection, because of his glory, because of his exalted state, may we listen to what the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, would tell us. God, we ask you give us the strength by your Spirit to hear and to do and obey. We pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.